G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast, AFLW in full swing. AFL men's competition uh, about to start gearing up uh, post-Australian Open now. Good Australian Open tennis this year, but that's always the sign for the footy news to start getting serious. And we've got plenty to bring you this week along with another in our exciting countdown in vinyl and video of our top 20 favourite movies and music and more footy nostalgia and fantastic footy flashbacks along with some life hacks. There's the full compendium of podcasting goodness there, as I say, a very good evening in this instance to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Yeah, not bad, but I think I'm all sort of um, worded out because we've just come off our longest ever, and we've been around for a while, our longest ever pre-program sort of, what do we call it, a meeting, a powwow? A meeting, <laughs> more I like think a, an, impromptu, an impromptu ramble. Yeah, I think we've got some gold on the cutting room floor. By mm. we, I mean you, Rowan, you're in good form. Uh, you know what? I'm always, I always look forward to the various components of the show, but knowing what's coming up in vinyl and video and the flashbacks of football, I'm, I think it's going to be a cracking show, actually. You know, when I used to do... Um the uh, footy videos for the age, the weekly preview footy fix. And uh, they would actually keep all the, uh, the outtakes and whatever, and, and do a sort of end of year thing. And every single year, it was just 10 minutes of wall to wall, me saying the F word and a few C words as well. So it ceased to be entertaining very quickly. Um, yeah. So a bit of gallows humor, finally. Uh, I'm certainly in that state of mind at the moment. I've got to say, Robert, your humor so sometimes self-deprecating, sometimes unintentional. Unintentional being the funniest. I reckon it's marketable. I'd go and watch. I'd go and watch you on stage. Well, I try to operate finey on the uh, the principle of not even the glass being half empty, but the glass never actually having anything in it to begin with. And uh, it's a pretty good premise for most of my life these days, I find. All right, enough of this. Uh, we had a lot to bring you, and it's going to be good fun, believe it or not. So let's get on with it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, plenty of news around, uh, plenty of sad news, unfortunately, as we bring you this, recording this on Tuesday. Um, this has just happened today, but. Sad news, Finey, and particularly for anyone around our age who grew up with football in the 1970s and knew how big a phenomenon VFA football was, Sunday for the VFA, and there was no, literally no bigger figure in VFA football in those halcyon days than the great and fabulous Freddie Cook, Port Melbourne full forward, and sadly, Freddie has passed away today at the age of 74 in a nursing home in Bendigo. 
uh, been pretty crook for some time and a uh, bit of a, a sad story for quite a while now, Finey, his uh, descent, I guess, into uh, pretty ordinary drug habit um, and uh, fueled some fairly indiscreet activities and he actually did a bit of jail time. But, um, boy, prior to that, as uh, purely as a footballer playing for the Borough, who a fantastic side they had during the 70s, winning premierships in 74, 76, 77, and then 80, 81, 82. Um, terrific side. And Fred Cook, a larger-than-life character, ma- massive media presence for someone who wasn't then playing in the VFL. Um, Channel 7, World of Sport, he was on radio. He did the after-dinner circuit. Uh, he ran pubs. Uh, but again, I just wanted to focus on the actual uh, uh, tallies of goals he kicked playing in those port sides, Finey. And here's a breakdown. This is courtesy of Paul Amy, who, of course, wrote the book about Fred and has written a lovely obituary for him in the Herald Sun today. Uh, Fred Cook, 67 goals in 1973, 58 in 75, 108, sorry, 58 in 74, 108 in 75. 125 in 76, 125 in 77, 115 in 78, 79 in 1979, 112 in 80, 106 in 81, 139 in 82, and 76 in 83. Um, And those last few seasons, um, of course, uh, moved away from uh, Port after being given the flick and finished up at Moorabbin. But, wow, 253 games and 1,236 goals, Finey. Uh, what a massive presence Fred Cook was. Rowan, if I was to take a 20-year-old today and explain not only the footballing exploits of Fred Cook, but his journey from a um, hardly spectacular but very capable VFL for our centre-half back for Footscray into the world of Port Melbourne, playing a comp called the VFA. Try to explain that. Try to explain the back streets of Richmond and some of the really dangerous characters that he associated with, including a man known as Mr Death, Dr Death, actually. He, it's a world, you may as well say, try to explain an alien life form or something that lives at the bottom of the ocean because his world of glamour and and the pitfalls of drugs and, and how you can be seduced by bags of money and bags of other things. Um, I mean, money barely exists. The drugs he was using have morphed into other things today. They were dangerous, but they've morphed. The football he played doesn't exist. The amount of goals he kicked in a season is just fiction and fantasy nowadays. They'd think you were making it up. What? He kicked 100 goals every year. He, uh, what? Um, you know, he was using just normal amphetamine. That seems crazy. He... Uh, the only thing they'd relate to is that he looked like Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men. Yeah, he Fred, Freddie Cook was a, you know what? He was a a person. He was flawed. He admitted his flaws. He's one of the very few people who, when talking about himself later in life, didn't do so from a 
faux position of resurrection and sanctity. He, he's, he was happy to say that he never was able to clear himself of the addictions and the and the associations that he made in those rough working class suburbs. So he, he never claimed that he'd, he finally understood and got it right. So you kids stay in school. It was never, ever preachy. But I tell you what, Fred Cook was one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to on air and plenty of times off air. What a what a what a real real person he was, Rowan. Real troubles and good times all mixed in together. Well, like uh, like a, a lot of people our age. I mean, I, I grew up barracking for Port. Uh, they were on the TV, you know, every second Sunday or two out of three Sundays, practically being such a good team. And um, uh, Freddie was the uh, everyone's hero. I remember actually running out in the ground, I think, when he kicked his 100th goal in one of the grand finals. It might have been 1980. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going into the rooms after they won the uh, the flag in 77, I think. Uh, the first VFA grand final I went to was the infamous Dandenong Port one at Junction Oval yep. in 76 when he got flattened by Alan Harper. But um, just so prolific. You know, there's nothing graceful about him as a footballer. He was a strong mark. He was an adequate kick. He wasn't a sublime yeah, kick. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're not guilty of him. He no, never no, he was far from home. No, he wasn't a he wasn't a stylist, but he was just very, very effective. And uh, on the end of some great delivery, because those port sides, that's the other thing people wouldn't probably appreciate now, just how good some of those really good VFA sides were, a, a pretty high standard of footy. So um, he reached an amazing level um, even after a fairly short VFL career of, I think, 33 games for Footscray before yeah. going to, was it Yarraville or Mordialic and then to Port yeah. and then finishing up at Moorabbin. So, um, just quickly, just, just a couple of things, Rodan. Yeah. Interestingly, now, he used to say this. He said, there is a quality that got me most of my goals. He goes, and it's not coached. And when I tell players about it, they don't seem to understand it. And he simply said that you, if your frame allows you to do it, putting yourself between your opponent and the ball in Australian rules is a certain way, a certain way to maximise your opportunities. Because if you you mark it and free kicks are paid in that position, so mm. that's all he ever tried to do was line up the kick, line up his opponent, and get in between them. Simple philosophy, and he was, you know. When he played, because they often came in the rooms afterwards, those port followers, many of them influential people from the wharves, etc., and not uncommon to literally stuff dollar notes in the hands of the, the match winners. And it was often Fred. And Fred said that when he came in, and it's in his book, I think, that he went from, from being sort of um, envied a bit when he played. So he wasn't really one of the... He was on the boys, but there was that made a problem for him. And he said he went from that to almost automatically being pitied because of the situation he put himself in. And he said that's not that was that's he's upset about that because they're a great bunch of blokes and he never he, he wanted to be just one of the boys, but he never ever was. He was either above them or below them. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the sad passing of Fred Cook, but what a VFA legend he was. Uh, yes. Condolences to friends and family. Um, 
Some better news uh, this week, finally, concerning uh, one of your team's, well, now ex-players, but Paddy McCartan. And, of course, hasn't he had an incredibly tough run with concussion uh, being picked up by the Swans as a rookie in the pre-season supplemental selection period after training with them over summer. He will now, of course, join his brother Tom at Sydney and uh, gets another chance to add to the 35 games he played for the Saints. So that's a good news story, isn't it, Fine? It is. We, I think part of his comeback has been concerning, but thankfully not for the reasons we were worried about, and that was uh, more concussion. It seems as though in, in uh, you know, some outings with Sydney in the last couple of years he's been looked at, that has not reared its ugly head, but boy, um, and understandably a bit of um, residual anger because he's been a bit of a nasty customer. That's okay. That's all right. He shouldn't hit people. Uh, he did have one act that was indiscreet, but I'll say this. Good to talk to him after speaking about Fred Cook because I, I think his career might do a reverse, Freddie. I doubt they'll play him at full forward. And he could, well, as Fred went from centre-half back to full forward, he might go from full forward to seven and a half back and form a very interesting and if he get, if he can get up to speed, very competent back line with his brother. Well, that's uh, where he was playing um, for the Swans last year. So yeah. it looks like that may well be the case. And we've seen that work out successfully for a number of players over the journey. But uh, just to even have him back playing, I mean... Um, you know, it's it's bad enough, I guess, uh, a talented junior player having their ambition thwarted, but one as highly rated as he was and to have been taken as a number one draft pick um, and for it to have finished oh, yes. uh, as it was threatening to finish would have been uh, terrible. So let's hope he gets a pretty clear run at it now. And James uh, Robin, I must have the last word because in their storied history, almost 150 years, let this be another exclamation mark on St Kilda and the now tome that is how we effed it up. They were tossing up between he and Petrarca and most people thought they were going to take Petrarca. So, yes, where are we at with Petrarca? Of course, Mm. North Smith medalist led his team to the promised land and St Kilda has picked a good backup defender for Sydney. Yeah, that'll that'll come under the very long chapter of Draft by the daft. Yes, hindsight is a wonderful thing when it comes to drafting, however. Um, all right, we better uh, move it along here. Uh, well, we've had plenty of fixturing shenanigans with AFLW. Uh, in fact, as we record this, there is actually an AFLW match in progress, part of round four, somehow featuring two teams which have already played a game in round four. So um, they're starting to confuse themselves now. But... Uh, There is also a very distinct possibility there may have to be a fair bit of reorganising done with the men's fixture. Um, With the WA teams uh, still carrying the biggest question marks given the state of uh, the border closures over there and um, potential ramifications for sides playing over there, having to quarantine... Um, I don't know. Are we looking at potentially a third season where we've got uh, fixturing done on the fly and a lot of changes? And uh, once again, those buzzwords, finally, agility and flexibility. Looks like we may need a fair bit of those qualities again. 
just on AFLW, I'm sure you would be looking for look you would be looking forward to uh, last week's clash of next year's preliminary final that should be held tomorrow, <laughs> and that that'll be I think that was on TV yesterday, so that was something to look out for. Um, yeah, confused of Melbourne. That is the the city of Melbourne. That's me. Writes. Does WA? Does Mark McGowan now patrol that giant border with a flashlight and a shotgun? Because he seems to be the last bastion of stay out. I'm a Hatfield. You're a McCoy. Even though they're they're incubating Omicron particularly well over there. I don't know what world he lives in. Honestly, I don't. I mean. It's there, mate. It's you're trying you're trying to keep a virus out, literally with with a barbed wire fence. Get over it, because if he doesn't get over it, I'm over it, and most football fans are over it. And that is the compromise season that almost a team like Fremantle could, could is a really interesting team this year in the AFL, and West Coast also interesting because they're age they're aging, and is their this their last shot. Both those teams, though, have fragility about them that I don't think can stand spending seven months away from home. It just, it just, it's not fair for those teams, and it starts to compromise the competition. I really, what do you think? I reckon footy fans will just not. I mean, they'll still watch the footy and go to their teams, but it'll be a frustration that will start to asterisk this period indelibly if they have another tampered with season. Uh, possibly, but then again, you could argue that uh, hundreds more deaths would start to asterisk the period in life terms, not just uh, football terms. So, um, hundreds more deaths of who, what, and how? Well, people. Uh, well, I mean, they're saving lives by doing this. That's my sort of bottom line on it. And as much as I love my sport, um, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into a too deep a debate, bro. But I'm just saying. Um, Look, we could save lives by banning motor cars. And I don't want to be glib about it, but at some point the world is going to have to live with, and we are, it's, it's, it's going to become, it is almost endemic. And the reality is the world is going to live with the, the burden of this virus. It's, it's just, I don't know. I mean, do you, find, do, do you find, we spoke about, I've sort of spoke about it a bit last week. <laughs> The, the inconsistency of the application of laws re-COVID made me feel as though we're sort of living with it and coping with it. And I just, I just hope, selfishly from a football perspective, that WA comes to the party in that respect. And I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the loss of life, but I think we're going to have to live with that, bro. Yeah, well, um, it's a difficult one. It's it's uncharted territory, and it is. Uh, it is. It, and uh, you true. know, some people have been banging the same drum about we've got to learn to live with it since day one. Um, and I think uh, had we opened things up then, who knows what the death toll will be? Anyway, yeah, I yeah, look. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a bigger picture. But do we agree that? That would make it hard for the WA teams if they don't play at home this year. Of course, it would It'd make it ridiculously hard. Um, yep. Anyway, look, let's zip through uh, perhaps in a, a bit more brief uh, sense than usual. But uh, AFLW, uh, game on at the moment. So we will, uh, that's still going. So we may be able to bring you a final score at some stage there. But, but that's a round four game, isn't it? It is a round four game. As the teams are, have already played in round four. Correct, it is. Yeah, we, we've, done <laughs> we've done that, Gag. Um, no, but I'm saying it's, it's, 
why why just semantics is that i don't know why they would say that but anyway, carry on. oh i don't know uh anyway Fremantle in their first game in round four uh big winners over collingwood 5 8 38 defeating the pies just 1 1 7 a uh, bit of a reality check there for the pies who had been going all right uh, easily GWS's best performance of the season, 7-1, great kicking, 43, defeating the Bulldogs, who hadn't played for about three weeks, 2-10, 22. Uh, top of the table clash, potential grand final preview this, and uh, pretty, pretty emphatic win to Adelaide, 4-11, oh. 35, defeating Melbourne, 3-3, 21. Um, i my tip for grand final. Uh, yes, they are looking very, very good. The Crows have got a an all-star lineup, no question about that, even uh, with some of their better players being held okay. Aaron Phillips, uh, terrific again. Um, they are definitely flag favourite for mine. Brisbane squeaked over the line against Geelong, 3-9-27, yes. defeating Geelong 4-1-25. North Melbourne, big winners over Carlton, 7-9-51, defeating the Blues, 3-3-21. Been very impressive for the Roos. And Gold Coast, a second win ever and a second win in a row over Richmond by five points, 5-9-39, defeating Richmond, 5-4-34. What were the highlights out of that for you, Fanny? The That game between Geelong and Brisbane, I mean, Geelong had a chance to win that game. They had a shot. Look, that girl had kicked three goals, um, for Geelong, and I'm sure you can help me with her name. So it's cruel luck that she would be the only point kicker for Geelong. Would that have been, just knowing the prehistories of those teams, I, I turned that on and I, and I stayed watching it because Geelong were in front. And I thought that we're about to see the biggest upset that I'd seen probably in AFLW. Uh, Gold Coast, big upset, but they were very good. And... Um, for they were good. They were a good team, Gold Coast, or at least the Gold Coast that I saw. But the best thing was GWS because I got stuck into them last week and they set up a lead here yeah, with good kicking against the Bulldogs and the Bulldogs hadn't played for a while. But uh, they came at them hot and heavy in the last quarter, the Bulldogs, and GWS stood up really well. It was every player... Every player was contributing. I'm not saying they're super skilled, but boy, was that a good win. Uh, it was Chloe Shear who kicked those yes. goals. I, I felt for her. Yeah. yeah. Could, have, could have been the real hero and actually had played a great game. Now, as we speak, uh, Western Bulldogs playing Fremantle uh, just into the second half. So we might, uh, we might finish off this episode with a final score from that game. Uh, all right, that is the news for this week. It's time for number eight in our countdown. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, we're getting down to the uh, business end of this countdown. Number eight this week. Uh, we're going to start with movies. Finey, I'm going to let you go first this week. What is your eighth favourite movie of all time? I knew you'd let me go first. And you, do you know why? If, we, if, if this countdown of top 20s was a game of chess, then tonight 
open today, ladies and gentlemen, depending when you listen to the podcast, Rowan is playing the cannoli gambit of a power phalanx of two, two of the most powerful. His song and his movie tonight are in the in the sort of pantheon of the greats of the greats of the greats. So I'm going to give mine, and then he's going to trump both of them. All right, <laughs> so I'll go first. It wasn't it wasn't my uh, thinking at all. But, but, but okay. you do have a powerful duo, don't you? I do. I, I it's do. Got, it's got gravitas and and, and sort of argument winning form. But it has. But yours aren't shabby. Yeah, but it's not a it's not a competition, Rowan. It's, so, yeah, it's not about how big it is. Um, okay, I'm going first because I love this movie, and it's funny actually because both our movies are biops of powerful men, but they're quite different blokes, and almost serendipitously, on the sad day when Freddie Cook passed, an associate of Fred's is the subject of my movie because they did some work on the road together. In with a collection of, of other sort of um, um, anti heroes at Sportsman's Night, so they knew each other. And mine is the movie that launched Eric Banner as a world superstar. Yes, it did. I speak of Chopper, August 2000 release. And the movie Chopper Rowan is for mine, my, I think, the best Australian movie ever made. And people might say, oh, it was the most entertaining, but not best. No, it is it is internationally acclaimed for um, being a low-budget but masterfully directed movie. And I'll tell you this, that this, this piece was doomed for failure, Rowan. It was doomed for failure. The key subject Chopper had provided, had offered himself up for study and for consultation, but before the movie was released and even completed, he pulled the pin because he started to get a sense that this was the true look at Chopper, a man whose self-aggrandisement might have over might, might be the overwhelming factor rather than his his um, notorious crimes were they real? So he didn't want a bar of it. The star was they cast a sitcom a a um not a sitcom, a sketch comedy actor. Eric Banner had played a role in the castle, but he was left field in terms of really grabbing this one by the throat, but he did. Um and quite frankly, the subject matter for most people was sort of distasteful. Chopper had already earned the ire of many because he had profited from crime through his you know, simply written books and people thought enough's enough. You know, why are we idolising and and hero worshipping a self-mutilating bully who may or may not have killed, but certainly killed some people, probably not as much as he exaggerates about. But it turned out to be a fascinating film, a true look into the underbelly of Australia. And I still use that word reservedly because the underbelly series is, it is a candle compared to this inferno it is funny it is serious it is quotable and the portrayal of chopper encapsulates a man who sometimes with time on his hands alone in a cell has time to you know catch a glimpse of himself in the mirror and realize that the story and the man are two separate things it's a brilliant movie 
Well, if you uh, no, well summed up. If you're going to wrap it up, though, as a, a bit of filmmaking, you need to uh, give kudos to the director, who yes. is Andrew Dominic. Yeah, Andrew um, Dominic, and again, not a not a name, not one of Australia's great directors in terms of his body of work. I couldn't tell you a, a single other film that he'd done, no, to be honest. No, and I can't either. He, he has done other things, but this happens in in the creative world that we have sustained genius and we have sort of spikes of genius, don't we? So I, I just love the filming. I loved, I loved um, sometimes the use of, of different film stock and different speeds of film to try and um, have different perspectives on Chopper's version of events. It was sort mm. of hyper-real at some times, the shooting of the Turk. Sorry if I give this away. It was filmed in such a manner that made it questionable. I thought that was very cleverly done. Um, the the filming of Jimmy Luffman and his apartment is done with a color with a color um, palette that is not real. That's actually it, it's sort of it's a wash with greens where it's hard to identify what the real colors are. But this is the this is the um, sort of it's a St Kilda apartment of, of heroin addicts that is in chaos and disorder. And the fact that it's filmed in chaos and disorder, I think, is brilliant. Yeah, look, I'm I'm about halfway between where you think of it and what you said the critics said about it. I, I didn't even... I, I actually never watched saw this film until about a year ago. Um, and I did enjoy it. It's really well made. And what you were just saying then about the, uh, what is it, the cinema photography, I guess. It's yeah, the, 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 the yep. colours and the lighting and, and they really lend it atmosphere. Um, I did still think it was a bit, you know, it's sort of erred perhaps on the heroic side with him. Um, maybe that's just me. I'm, I'm sort of a bit over generally the sort of lionisation of, of morally questionable characters, which I think not just cinema, but TV and, in fact, the media uh, spends an awful lot of time doing these days. So that could just be me getting older and grumpier. So, look, no, very good. Just, just on that row, I mean, a lot of that lionisation was his version of things and his take on things, you know, that the, the, the um, war stories were his and it did show him bashing his girlfriend pretty graphically yeah, it yeah. showed it showed needle intravenous drug use that, yeah. and remember it's 22 years old right it was yeah. there there is a level of confrontation there but a, a, an honesty and i think it'd be hard press especially 22 years later to get too many sympathetic um and male and female sympathetic fans of mark chopper reed when you just think hang on yeah but there's no reason for him to bash his girlfriend and then tell the mother, look what you made me do. I mean, in a way, his response is funny because it's immature, but nobody nobody can say that that scene wasn't disturbing because it came out of nowhere. Yeah, no, no, fair point, fair point. Uh, no, very good film. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, yeah. I, I rate it highly. Yeah, good, good. All right, my number eight film, as you alluded to, arguably um, the most famous film of all time, certainly the... I think not much doubt about it being the most critically acclaimed film of all time, regularly number one in polls of the greatest films ever. Uh, I speak, of course, of Citizen Kane, 1941. 
And that is perhaps the most amazing part of this um, for anyone that hasn't seen it. When you do, I think, uh, and as I remember myself being struck by just how contemporary the whole thing seemed for a film made in 1941. Um, pretty extraordinary circumstances in which this film was made, of course, produced, directed and starring Orson Welles as newspaper baron Charles Foster Kane. Um, it is a look back at his life as told through uh, interviews, um, a guy working on a uh, obituary, actually, because, uh, well, this film's sort of done in reverse. I don't think it's too big a spoiler to say that the story opens with Charles Foster Kane on his deathbed and we go backwards to find out about him. But um, it, it's an involving plot, but I have heard a lot of people say that there's nothing particularly special about the the plot or the way that the story unfolds or whatever. It is, I think, that in conjunction with the techniques used, it's almost like this is a, a template for what filmmaking would become in terms of... On, we spoke before about the cinema photography with Chopper, but this is in 1941. And the, uh, you know, the, the way Wells used the camera, the way the shots were composed, um, uh, the acting performances, uh, the one take um, scenes, uh, just stuff here that you would never, ever have seen in movies of that era, any other movie of that era, just so ahead of its time. There's only one other um, film I've ever seen in my life that made me feel similarly about being so ahead of its time. And um, that's a film I'm not going to give away because it's actually one of my top eight films. So I was about to, and I thought better of it. But uh, oh, I'm going to give it away. It was when you saw Jaws in 3D and you thought, that's it. <laughs> no, Every it movie will now be made coming at you. You know, I've, 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 that's an, another film I only saw recently and I've only seen it once. But um uh, yeah, I guess that's how I'd sum it up. Look, in terms of stars, I mean, Orson Welles, um, sorry, the remarkable thing about this is that he was a big um, stage actor. And, uh, of course, he'd done the uh, famous War of the Worlds and that had um, sparked interest in Hollywood. And he got an unusual, I was reading about this last night, got an unusually favourable deal which gave him you know, final say on what went in the film and what hit the cutting floor and every every element of it, really. And um, I don't think many other uh, directors um, would get that sort of largesse and uh, it enabled him to make the film he wanted to make, which is probably the major reason it was so futuristic and ahead of its time. But um, that's how I see it. To me, this is as much about... Um, the method of filmmaking um, as it is about the actual story. But I think it's an entertaining and, and gripping story with fantastic acting performances, none the least from Orson Welles. Agnes Moorhead, of course, uh, is also in this film too. Uh, she of Bewitched later. But uh, I don't know, where, where do you stand? You're a student of film, Finey. Where do you rate Susan Cain? I'm more interested in raising your raising your take on the film, and I say this: that the apple does not fall, fall far from the tree. Your father was a storied Australian best movie film critic, and Citizen Kane has lost its lost its um, luster because eighty years on, 
what the importance of that movie is can only be measured in the quantum leap it took from movies before it and where it took us afterwards. Of course, we had to wait really till the 50s because of the war and austerity after the war to pick up the cudgels again. But gone was the last remnants of overacting that was a, a sort of um, a cast off or a, a legacy of silent movies where actors were, um, and they were, they were em, em, emblemizing, you know, when an actor over, makes an overly um, characterized face for emotions, etc. This was, movies were simplistic, but this was the sort of movie that dealt with the subject matter as a person rather than as a, an, a character to entertain or a, something to make you sad, happy, angry. They were very simplistic before then, but this was multifaceted and filmed in a way that made you at times question whether or not you were watching a film or somebody's life. And that was its great strength. So it's absolutely, its importance is the huge leap forward it took in movie making from sort of um, just tales, embellished tales into, into real realistic portrayals. And we, we today feast on the sort of movies and TV shows that are genuine, genuine slices of life. And incredibly, before then, that was not movies. You know, it was comedians hanging off Big Ben or the idea was to be hyper real and hyper funny and hyper silly in movies. And we now can thank Citizen Kane that movies take us into places, into lives and to places we never would go, but do it, do it in a way that is real. Yeah, no, well put. And, and you know, aside from all the, the technical and historical significance of it, it is a really good story in its own right, and I shouldn't undersell and, and that. And one that would appeal to you because of its subject matter, John, before. Correct, correct. And, of course, uh, based on several characters, but primarily, I think, based on newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst. So uh, if you're one of the handful of people on the planet that haven't seen it, make sure you do. Uh, before you shuffle off this mortal coil. And it hasn't lost its luster for you by virtue of the fact that on occasions Kane Corns is referred to as Citizen Kane? Is he really? Okay, yeah, you've heard that being one of the many epithets that he's either forced somebody to give him or made (laughs) a producer put on the screen at gunpoint or something. I wonder if he knows what it is. No, I shouldn't do him a disservice. Uh, His brother, Chad, by the way, if uh, Chad's listening, Chad... Uh, a man with quite possibly the best musical taste among the AFL playing fraternity. Um, we often talk, talk share Not out. born Chad, Rowan. What's that? He wasn't born Chad Corns. Why was he born? Chudley. Chudley. That's not true. That is true. Studley is Graham's middle name. Yeah, and he's Chudley. All right. Okay, let's get on with it. Um, your number eight song, please. I really, I'm going to be interested in what you think of this song, but this is a song that, and I, I love songs that do this, and I've got to thank Kevin Hilly because it's a term that he made me familiar with. It really jumps out of the radio at you from the first bar. It's, well, I'm doing it a bit. I actually pick it up from 
the first vocal, but that's okay because it's it's absolutely at you from every angle through the song. I think. Have a listen to Fine Young Cannibals' Drummy Come Home. What do you think I'd think of that song, Fanny? It's not your sort of music, but you know what, Rowan? Sometimes you've got to get out of bed moving rather than stay in bed waiting for the four balls to collapse upon you and 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 sort of somebody from a parallel universe picking you up in a similarly sombre mood. I'm not saying it's a fun... The subject matter's not that fun because it's about drinking and, and sort of... I'm not quite sure exactly what Johnny Come Home is, but... It's got saxophones, it's got movement, it's got it's got a you know sort of very young Buddy Franklin lookalike, which of course Roland Gift was accused of and Buddy's been accused of, but I think it's a great song. And I, I just really like that it's got it's got a bit of scar about it, it's got a bit of English um, alternative about it. But in fact, Fine Young Cannibals really staked their claim and made their name in the US, even though this song was not a success, only got to 76 in the charts. I checked what was in the charts at that time. Americans have been accused of not having a great deal of taste, and this chart in May 29 of 1985 confirms that. At number 14, we are the world, the most absolutely... I mean, if, if putting together people to serve themselves makes for music then that should be the national anthem of the planet Earth. Otherwise, it should never be sung again. Things can only get better by Howard Jones. Luckily, it did because he didn't have a lot to do after that. And at number one, Everything She Wants by Wham, which, quite frankly, and I don't hate Wham, but I hate that song, and this song could only get to 76. Shame on you, America. No wonder you were probably fighting Granada at the time anyhow. I actually asked you a question then. Do you remember? I knew you'd hate it. I know know you. I know you, Rowan. Anything sort of upbeat and pleasant, you you would be drinking. You know, mate, if if we went out to a bar and they played that song, you would go up to the bar and you know what you'd say? What? You're fairly, fair income. Seriously. You don't have any any nine-inch nails or something that we can all get, you know, you're... Oh, you know, you would complain about that song, I reckon. All right. Well, let's just take the clock back those five minutes when I asked you that question, looking for the two or three word response. You'd hate it. No, I didn't. I liked it. Really? Yeah, I like it. I like upbeat, happy songs. I, I think the um, it's got interesting brass in it. Uh, he's got an interesting voice. Um, Roland Gift or Kevin Caton, if you're a Fitzroy. Kevin, supporter. yeah, that's him. Oh, Don't tell God. that story again. We've, I reckon we've done this four or five times. Yeah, um, yeah but I did like that song. Uh, I liked it. What okay. was the other big hit they had? I don't know. It's just a scum. Um, good thing. Good oh, yeah. thing. No, they, yeah, they had a few. Yeah, but I, I think this probably my favourite. Fine Young Cannibal song. So you're wrong, Fine. Admittedly, this was mid-80s when I was going through a fairly ill-advised synthesizer period involving (laughs) 
Pseudo so, so echo and attack, kids in the kitchen and real life. My um, attack on Howard Jones was not taken well actually, by you. I, you know what? I actually don't mind that song, Things Can Only Get Better. Really? What the, yeah, what was the other one you mentioned? Oh, We Are The World. No, that's that is definitely Things Can Only Get Better, there. an optimistic song by a studio-produced yeah. dwarf with, dwarf with um, questionable hair, because I think his hair actually isn't human hair, yeah. and terrible, and you like it? Well, it wasn't as questionable as the hair of the weed singer of Kajagoogoo, who did Too Shy. Anyway, this is going nowhere. As yeah, but have just, a, on, just on Fine Young Cannibals, a good thing. Did you like the movie Letter, um, the Tin Men? Uh, Richard Dreyfus. Oh, you know, it's about it. the aluminium siding. Yeah, I saw that 30 years ago. Got no yeah. memory of it at all. I just no. love that in that movie, it was set in the 50s with all the big American cars, totally 50s. And they go, they go to a bar and Find Young Cannibals are singing Good Thing, which is a song they released in the late 80s. And I just never oh, yeah. understood it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, continuity error. All right. I'm going to give my song now. Um, oh, here we go. Number eight. It, it is uh, a, behe- a, a be- I can never say the word properly. Behemoth or behemoth? It, yeah, it, it is. It is a... In the world of music, Rowan is now playing, you know, if you've got cards, Rowan's now playing the Ace of Clubs, King of Spades, all the Queens and about four Jacks and two Tens all in one card. Thanks, mate. Um, just so you didn't say Ace of Spades or I might have put on Motorhead, but I haven't. I am reaching for one of the greats. That is Led Zeppelin. I am reaching for the album Led Zeppelin 3. I've got to say, not my favourite Led Zeppelin album, pretty quite a sort of uh, very acoustic album, this, except for this one song, a certified radio classic. Uh, I reckon we've all heard this song many, many times before. And uh, let's hear it again. I mean, Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin, You, Really, Going. It's not mainstream, but hitting so many people's sweet spot. I just remembered seeing a stand-up comedian on TV once, and he said that my definition of heaven would be getting into the elevator to go up to the pearly gates and they were playing Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. So there you go. One of the things I love about it is that it still sounds so contemporary, I reckon. You know, like a lot of things that passed for what they called metal or, or you know hard rock back in say 1970 um you know like deep purple for example i find a lot of that stuff actually isn't that heavy but this that song actually is and um one of the reasons i think i marginally prefer led zeppelin over uh, the other 
you know, um, acknowledge great bands of that era. It's just a great song. Of course, School of Rock made it even more famous, that fantastic scene where Jack Black's driving the kids in the school bus to their uh, gig and he's got immigrant song going in the background. Um, the wailing banshee-like vocals of Robert Plant, the great uh, the great guitar work of Jimmy Page and the uh, the galloping drum beat of uh, John Bonham. Uh, just a fan, and it's short too. So in fact, I think it's just on or even under two minutes. Yep, but yeah, I, yeah, that, it is Rowan. Yeah. I know that because I, you know, we, we know each other's selections before they come on. Yep. So I went and listened to it. And I thought I had the wrong version. But that is, that is your right. It's, it's a bit of 57 or something. There you that's go. the actual version. There you go. Not your standard three and a half minute pop track. So Immigrant Song, my number eight. Johnny Come Home by Fine Young Cannibals, Finey's number eight, our movie, Citizen Kane and Chopper. Uh, some fairly large legacies left there in both a music and uh, film sense. So well worth it. Hey, Robert, we, we really embrace, did not embrace our feminine song, did we? No, no, it was pretty uh, pretty alpha male this week. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was. Never mind, we can, uh, we can get in touch with our sensitive side next week. I might go for Beaches. And um, Sheena Easton. Uh, what was that one? You'll get a Sheena. What's her name? Sheena Easton. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe I'll pick Beaches and you can pick Love Actually or something, or Four Weddings and a Funeral, or um, I don't know, something else I hate. All right. That is <laughs> final <laughs> video uh, for this week. We'll be back next week with number seven. Uh, time now for a bit of uh, philosophizing. Life hacks. Building a better world. Uh, well, I talked about um, this last week or this tournament. Uh, I want to sign off on the Australian Open finally, which is funny because I I didn't watch much of it at all this year. I'll be honest. Uh, caught a glimpse here or there, watched the odd set um, until it got to the final. So I did what I'm always hanging on other people for doing a bit of bandwagon jumping. However. I was very keen to see Ash Barty and uh, like everyone else, just absolutely awestruck at not, not only how good she is, but what a fantastic ambassador she is in a sporting and cultural sense for this country. Uh, of course, first Australian, Australian Open, Australian, you know what I'm trying to say, champion for 44 years, 1978, the last time an Australian won the title, but uh, you know the way—not just the way she did it, but the grace with which she won, her understatedness. I love that so much because it's such a—I don't know—at one time a typical Australian quality, and I think we've sort of lost that a bit. Bit of bit too much self-aggrandizement happening for my liking in this country over the last few decades. Ash Barty is a bit of bit of a throwback to an old understated Australian sporting champion. I love her humility. I love her modesty. I love her care for other people in the game. I love the way the other players obviously love her so much because of those qualities. Uh, it's just fantastic. She's just such a rounded uh, and articulate person. I mean, the speech, the speeches she gave, I mean, she obviously does a lot of media now, but she's so relaxed and articulate and sensible. And, um, and it, it, it led me to tweet and uh, this got picked up as much as any tweet I've ever written. I think it was just that um, basically saying in much shorter version what I've just said there, but 
um, you know, she makes me, she actually makes me proud to be Australian. That's the sort of face of Australia I love seeing presented on the international stage. She is a fantastic ambassador for this country. And I guess those sentiments were sort of amplified a bit by um, the men's final on Sunday night when uh, Rafael Nadal got up off the canvas from two sets down to win that uh, record-breaking 21st major. And I think first man to come from two sets down in an Australian Open final for a long, long time, since I think since Ken Rosewell, I might be wrong, uh, against Medvedev, who admittedly turned himself into a bit of a, a pantomime villain. But um, Nadal, yeah, I mean, look, he's grunting and he's, you know, slow play or whatever can grate a bit, but he's just such a great sportsman and has been for so long now. And again, a great ambassador for his sport. And I just looked at the men's and women's champions of the Australian Open. I thought you could not ask for two better examples of what the sport, what the people running the sport would want that sport to represent and be about. So uh, it was a great victory for tennis, I think, to have those two uh, taking out the titles of uh, the men's and women's respectively. And that's all I wanted to say, Bonnie. And you said it really well. Have you ever wondered why the personalities, attitude and likability of tennis players is so deeply explored? Because uh, it really is. Well, because it's such an individual sport, I guess. Yeah, because it's such a it's such a one dimensional sport, really. I think, you know, I mean, I'm not saying look, it's I played a lot of tennis as a kid, but it's the sport. A lot of tennis fans are sort of um, it's it's the sport. I'll be honest, there's tennis fans out there who just I think follow sport because that's what Australians do, and that's the easiest sport to understand. I love you know, I I just think that. It's a it's a grind watching five sets of Nadal, and we start looking at putting a forensic eye on what sort of person is Nadal, and look at Medvedev, and what's he up to? Because it's the same thing over and over for a long for five hours. I feel, but you know, I'm not saying it's easy to play, and it's very hard to be great. But we look, we we are more interested in their personalities and likability and, and I think than other sports people. That's just what I think. Anyhow. Fair point. All right. Uh, I feel like I'm now putting on a pair of bacon, a bacon wetsuit and some pig blood cologne and jumping into shark infested waters. But all right, here's the thing. I, I want to talk about um, uh, two footballers and they, they are in the AFLW. And they is an important word because I'm talking about Darcy Vessio and, um, Gar and, of course, pardon me, Tory Grows Little from Gold Coast. They are non-binary and the pronouns that they prefer, both individually and when spoken about as a pair, not that they are a pair, I mean, but is they. Now, that takes some understanding, but that's fine. And we live in a very inclusive society, and that's good. But Rowan, the and these I wrote down some of the adjectives and phrases used to describe both girls. And as I researched, as no, both um, not girls, both non-binary AFLW footballers. I apologise. Again, it's hard to just keep up with it, but I I, I do that out of a prehistory of not being 
brought up in a, a society that is far more understanding of, of the fluidity of gender. I hope I'm getting this right. But these are the terms that have been used to describe them. Brave, trailblazers, community leaders, they are... They are also, these are from football people, they have been described as um, within their own group, earning respect and deserved of the highest praise. And I don't quite understand why. I think I do understand why football commentators who are probably as clumsy with this as I am, simply defer to a fawning adulation of anybody who comes out as anything different from the expected because out of a fear of being considered um, bigoted, homophobic, uh, uh, sort of neanderthalic. Um, all those things, I think, rest very heavily on public figures talking about what is a very complex situation. Now, I'm going to ask you, Rowan, and I'm not asking to test you. I really am not. But, I, I do need some help to understand non-binary because I believe it can be a fluid gender, um, being fluid, fluid in your gender choices, that is, you could be male and female at different times. Then for some people, it's seeing yourself as a gender outside male or female. And for others, it is a period of non-gender selection you are neither until you make a decision and you may make that decision and then take other times when you are choosing to be non-gender it's a big menu to understand and I'm not saying it out of disrespect but how can I say it's brave courageous trailblazing I would never say that without understanding and I don't think everybody that's heaping praise fully knows what they're praising so what question are you asking me? What is non-binary? What, what is non-binary? Is it definable? And are the football commentators who were leaping over each other to be recognised as not only accepting of Grove Little's and Vessio's choices, but seemingly the approbation went to fording admiration? I don't understand why... Do you understand why? Um, well, I think your explanation of, of what non-binary means is as good as, well, better than anything I could offer. Um, I think the, the fawning quality is, I think, uh, it's, a, I guess, an overreaction to knowing what sensitive territory it is. Um, yep. yes. And, I mean, I, I've been privy to that myself um after andrew gardner on footyology wrote a piece about danny Laveley, and um there was uh, most of it you know in in couched in decent spirit but there's a fair bit of criticism um for things in that piece that i wasn't aware of and he wasn't unaware of and i'm talking about the concept of dead naming someone and i, I guess there's a, a feeling um, that with, you know, fluid sexuality and um, transitioning into uh, another sex that there's a lot of learning to be done and we're all going to stumble along the way. And I think 
people, rightly or wrongly, I think people, some people feel that if they stumble, someone is going to crucify them for it. Um, so it would be good, I think, if I understand why there's a perhaps an impatience on the part of people who are critical of people that make those sort of mistakes, but it'd be good if there was a little more patience because I think people are, are willing to get on board with this and, and they're not trying to be difficult, but it does need a bit of patience. And, and look, I'm, I'm prepared to say this. I've said to a couple of people the thing about, uh, you know, say with Darcy and, and Tory, that pronoun of they... I find it, it's a bit clunky to read and, and to write and to hear, but I'm not sure there's an alternative really. So I, I guess we just get used to that, but it is a fair adjustment process. And I think that sort of thing about courage and whatever, that probably reflects a bygone era. Well, not a bygone era, but that reflects a time when for anyone, you know, coming out um, about their sexuality involved a risk of, ostracization or, or humiliation or ridicule and in fact that, that is still the case I mean look at look at um, the reaction to Josh Cavallo the Adelaide player um, I think when they played a game in Melbourne a few weeks ago you know so uh, there's a lot of people still with pretty Neanderthal sort of attitudes to sexuality and I think a lot of people who have progressive attitudes but need to be taken along and educated along the way. And I guess there's got to be a, a bit of tolerance and patience shown while people are getting their heads around relatively new concepts. Does that make okay, sense? And I'm, and I'm going to leave it with a bit of humour that is, it's all right, this is my sense of humour, sort of disrespectful, but not of the subject, more of the person delivering it. So I was listening, on, I was watching on TV and, ta and Graves Little, her journey was described as she, in her teenage years, identified as bisexual, more recently has been in a lesbian relationship and is now identifying as non-binary. And they said, and they should be very proud of themselves. What a courageous journey. And I just thought, if they were lesbian before bisexual, is that as courageous? Is there an order to this trifecta that made them say, what a brave journey? I, I didn't quite understand why they sort of said it like first, second, third, and that's brave. So I'm, I'm glad that the commentator or the person talking about it thought that that was the real brave route to go. <laughs> well, it's funny you said first, second, and third, because it made me think, well, covering all bases. Um, it, 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 you know what it says to me? It says to somebody that, um, and I like this, I really like this, that is in touch with themselves and doesn't pigeonhole themselves. And it requires, um, not a, it's not, it's not it, part of it for, uh, is, it, is it Tara or, anyhow, part of it is um, sexual orientation. And at that age, boy, oh boy, we came from an era where sexual orientation was, for many people, the uh, the absolute destruction of their lives. That we lived in, uh, you know, I went to school in bad times, and for people that to to come out and be honest about your own sexuality was, you know, what it was physically putting yourself in peril. Isn't that an embarrassment? To and I don't say I was the person in endangering them but didn't we didn't we put up with bullies and and worse 
that made life hell for those people. I'm glad that I'm glad change. It's not complete change, but I'm glad change is afoot. Yep. No, here, here. Well said. All right. There is life hacks for this week, which leaves just one segment and time for a bit more nostalgia. <laughs> Footy flashbacks. All right, Fonny, I've gone way back this week and um, it's a grand final and it's one, uh, it's a thrilling finish and people are familiar with it, but um, there's a, a reason for doing this and that is um, that normally the footage you see of this is pretty grainy and unimpressive newsreel footage backed up by the classic uh, newsreel voice narration um which finally can you give us a quick burst of that narration quickly an example here we see melbourne supporters on the way to the game decked out in full colors red and blue for the demons their opponents collingwood in the black and white yeah yeah exactly well done um so uh i actually stumbled upon this quite by accident and it's uh, i'm pretty sure it's abc tv certainly tv uh coverage of the 64 Grand final. Usually, um, the TV replays we see of old grand finals tend to start with 66 and go onwards, but this is 64. Thrilling finish between Melbourne and Collingwood, those great sparring partners of the 1950s. Unfortunately, this just takes up after Ray Gabalich has kicked one of the most famous goals in grand final history a 60, 70 yard run from the big. Collingwood Ruckman to give the Pies a lead uh, deep into time on. Could they repeat their upset of the Demons from that 1958 grand final? Let's have a listen to the thrilling climax of this game. We have been playing for 23 and a half minutes into the last quarter. Norm Smith, the man without the hat, is the coach a worried coach of the Melbourne side. They trail by two points as McLean gets set to kick the ball out for Collingwood. There's the drop kick by McLean to the halfback line and Dixon flies to take the mark. Dixon, a stalwart of the Melbourne team for many years, has played well today. On the half-forward line, he sends it forward. Up they go. Barassi in there. Can't pull the mark down. Taken by Neil Compton. Compton kicks in towards goal for Melbourne.
players from both teams congratulating each other. And what a terrific finish to the 64 grand final. Terrific, fantastic. How else could you describe it? I'm sure today that we have seen one of the greatest spectacles of our Australian games ever played on this ground. I would like to congratulate the Collingwood side on their wonderful performance and, and give them my good wishes and to you Ron as captain of the winning side all good wishes, congratulations for a wonderful game. Well, of course, I mean, the main feature of this, as described years later, and probably only lost steam in recent years where the modern football fan doesn't even know all the positions, was what was back pocket Compton doing that far down the ground? And I've actually heard the dissection of it to the point where Ron Barassi said, well, I, well, I tell you, if I was coach and I saw that, in a home and away game, he wouldn't have played next week. So it was like the, you know, the little boy lost that won the grand final. Because we know Brian Dixon, Rowan, and he will tell you that all that uh, Froggy did was take the glory from him because he would have gone and marked his own kick and kicked the winning goal. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> and actually, Collingwood had a, a decent scoring opportunity even after Crompton's goal. But uh, I can't remember who the player was now, but uh, great. Uh, desperate tackle, saving it for the Demons. That, of course, gave them another flag to go with 55, 56, 57, 59 and 60. Uh, yep. And that, of course, would be the last flag for the next 57 years until last September. But uh, thrilling grand final finish and uh, some really heard uh, TV commentary from it. So I thought that was worth dragging out of the uh, archives, as Barry Hall would call them. Well, and, and we now know that the curse of the Red Fox, Norm Smith, is a 57-year curse. It's good that we now can put an actual age on the curse. Yes, uh, and about our age, Fawny. Uh, we'll, we'll be clocking up another year very shortly. What did, uh, what did, St. Kilda, ever, what did he, St Kilda ever do to Norm Smith? Because that one was going along nicely. No, well, that's the curse of uh, several um, incompetent yeah, that, administrators, I think. No, it's a curse of me, but uh, honestly, because I was brought up in an Essendon family, and I spoke to I spoke to the guy this week, the Essendon supporter that took me to my first game of football, Essendon St Kilda, and I said, "You made the mistake. You let us sit with the Janky family who buried for St Kilda. You took me to the game. Why didn't we sit with Essendon supporters?" It's a fair point. What year was that? Nineteen seventy-two at Moorabbin, and I went with this guy, Gary Bluestein. He lived in the same street as me, and we sat with the Jankies, who all buried for St Kilda, and, and the father of the family um, said to me, did you enjoy it? I said, yes. He said, well, you can come with us every second week. I said, great. And he said, do you know what? You now buried for St Kilda. And with that was the last chance I ever had of seeing a premiership. Well, you would have enjoyed the first couple of years when oh, St Kilda it- beat Essendon in the elimination final. You know, I wasn't into gloating at that stage, but I certainly knew I'd make the right pick yeah. for two years. Oh, yeah. look, it worked out all right. We, um, no, it didn't. All right. Uh, time for your flashback. Okay. You know how, you, and I don't want to get your take on this. You know how, and I like that you have, through your work with the age and other, and now footyology, you're very keen on sort of um, quantifying greatness in football games. I think this one has got lost for a couple of reasons. It's Richmond's, 
Richmond went to West Coast Eagles to be their first opponent in league football. And I've got a theory why this game isn't held up as a very important game, a brilliant, brilliant game to start your AFL career off. I've got some of the goals from the game and you'll hear by the commentary and, the, and they had some good commentators there. They threw a fair bit at this one. There's a few, few legends going on here. Pick up the voices. It's Richmond versus West Coast. And I really believe that West Coast set a standard that has seen them a powerhouse ever since their first game. Let's listen in. A 21-point lead held at the moment by the Tigers, who are playing with confidence right now. Ryan takes the mark at half-forward. Certainly the Eagles have their problems. They're Rovers and Ruck Rovers just getting that half-kick away from the ball all the time and really contributing nothing. This is Lamb. He's surrounded. He needs help. He flicks it out. Again, there's no runner around. This is Poole. Poole goes looking for Thompson. Thompson pushed in the back. He'll get a free kick. And certainly Richmond deserved the bulk of these free kicks. No doubt about that. They're getting in there. They're getting in front. And they're First of the them. ball. That's right. No doubt about it. Name of the game. Crowd don't like it, but that's all part of the atmosphere here at Subiaco Oval. And visiting sides will have to learn to contend with that. Richmond aren't making a bad fist of it at the moment. This is Thompson going long for distance. Magnificent spiral. Thompson, he puts it through for a goal from 60 metres out. distance with this kick he's only uh, about 30 meters out directly in front here's Bennett steers it through so the Eagles get the first two goals of the final turn that's their 13th they trail 13-10 to 15-8 from the throwing Ashenko gets a tap it's taken by Lewis gets the hand pass in Mitchell it was it got the hand pass into Poole Poole was tackled back with Lewis again straightens up onto the left foot hooks it across Lane Lee Excellent mark by Dean Lathley. And he's only 35 metres out from goal. Yeah, good call, Fawny. Remember, remember this game well. Um, that commentary too, that was the uh, Broadcom coverage. People might remember there were two uh, coverages of games that year. Broadcom, which was the commercial one, and uh, ABC, who serviced free-to-air. And that commentary team, uh, thanks to Broadcom, was Dennis Cometti, uh, Bob Skilton, Jack Edwards, I think, in there too. Great finish too. Richmond actually 33 points up at three-quarter time, but the Eagles came storming home finally. Nine goals to just one in the last quarter. West Coast in the end winning by 14 points. Uh, and our first look at some of uh, WA's finest footballers, a few who aren't remembered that well as uh, as well, like Peter Davidson, for example. The luckless Peter Davidson, who got injured in that game, apparently had a lot of ability, but we never saw it. Uh, Chris Lewis, I think, uh, stood out. Got a few good yes. looks at him. I'll yep. tell you, one uh, WA player I always was impressed by after seeing him win a state game for WA and played pretty well in this one too, Andrew McNish. Yes. Didn't end up playing that much for them. But uh, who else yeah. do we see? The likes of uh, Paul Pios, Mark Zanotti, 
Um, Dwayne Wham, of course, would become a great player in this side. And Lowry uh, Keane, who kicked their first goal. Of course, and a few others, uh, including a uh, subsequent Premiership North Melbourne player, Finey. Uh, on, well, we speak of Danny Laidley, who, of course, played as Dean Laidley and kicked a, a key goal. The last piece of action that we hear is Laidley doing what Laidley does as a footballer and marking bravely despite a light frame. In fact, I, I, in the early days, I used to get McNish and Laidley mixed up a bit. They were both fairly lithe yeah, but strong and courageous. Yeah, uh, and played tall. Yeah, correct. Um, I was drawn to this game a little bit because of Danny Laidley and her story. I worked with Danny before as Dean when when she identified as Dean Laidley, and what a football brain, what a passion for football. And we understand not diminished because Danny has been to the North Melbourne Football Club and has now been welcomed with open arms and piece by piece back into the fold. Saw Danny on TV at the tennis. The yeah. other the other thing about this game, Rowan, there is a goal that I've included. Now, people don't talk about this. I don't know whether you've seen this goal. If you if if you think that Malcolm Bly's kick and Jeff Ferrin's kick just came from nowhere, which they seemed to, didn't they? There's a goal by Mick Thompson of Richmond. That's, he, he gets the ball well outside the 50 and it's just climbing through the goals at post height. It's a, he got onto it, let me tell you. Well, yeah, uh, I would argue, I, I was actually a big Mick Thompson fan and uh, he was unlucky not to play more footy for Essendon because, of course, he had some pretty decent players competing with him. But uh, he had a point to prove because uh, his previous game of VFL footy Prior to that game, Finey, was, of course, the 1986 elimination final in which he kept Mick Conlon virtually kickless all day and then went went him off the chain for the final (laughs) 30 seconds, which saw Mick Conlon bob up for the winning goal. And uh, that is a good call. Let's sign off there. A game worth watching, although I am going to usurp your role here and do the obligatory off-colour joke, which is name another uh, West Coast player Don Holmes, who always made me think, of course, of his brother, the adult film star John Holmes. Um, the similarity that uh, they both wore large helmets uh, when they were playing. <laughs> um, who was the other footballer that reminded you of a porn star? Um... <laughs> I know who it is. It's it's the now North. It's the ex and Kilda. The West Coast player Cripps, is that correct? Correct, it is Jamie oh, Cripps. So who, I'm just going to um, ask this question without yeah. without any malice or or prejudice. Have you ever seen any porn pornography movies that have uh, females in them, Rowan? Uh, yes, I have. No, I'm, I'm saying because you are very strong on your catalogue of male porn stars. That's all I'm saying. And to quote Seinfeld, there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, and the um, you might as well say who Jamie Cripps' likeness is. It is, of course, Tom Byron. Uh, of course, and... because we all know what Tom Byron looks like. <laughs> I don't pretend you've never seen some of Tom's finest work. All right, um, moving right and along. And if I had, you... I still couldn't identify him from the neck up. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, <laughs> all right, that'll do us just nicely. Thanks for your company, everyone. 
you can continue to support this wonderful um, adult and very mature podcast at uh, oh, yeah. where is that starting now? Our ACAST <laughs> support page, wherever you listen to this podcast, or you can become an official footyology patron uh, following one of the many Patreon links on the footyology website. Rest assured that John Holmes, were he still on this planet, and Tom Byron were massive footyology supporters as well. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, We'll see you next time.